Welcome to MAP, the bi-weekly market access podcast provided by Mars Market Access and Pricing Strategy, which is your healthcare consultancy in the German-speaking markets. Mars makes it as easy as possible for you to get your pharmaceutical, medtech or digital health product to the market and of course get the price it deserves. My name is Stefan Walzer, I'm the founder of Mars and a health economist by training and working in the fields of market access, reimbursement, pricing and health economics already since 2004. Additionally, I founded the consultancy P&N Pricing and Negotiations in Healthcare based in Toronto, Canada, which supports companies and individuals globally by coaching, simulations and training, especially on negotiations. This service is including our innovative virtual reality simulation program and is part of the Negotiation Lab. And now let's learn about the market access and reimbursement systems around the globe. So, good morning, Karen. Karen Fessey, welcome to the Market Access Podcast episode. This time around real world evidence. But first things first, um, if you could maybe quickly introduce yourself, that people also know who you are if they do not know you anyway. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. I'm sitting in Scotland at the moment. I'm an independent consultant. I'm a statistician by training. I've worked in big pharma, medicines regulation, and 23 years ago, I came here to set up the first national HTA agency. And of course, I was excited to come to Scotland because Scotland has great data. We've got a unique patient identifier, and I was keen to see how we could use that. For the past 20 years or so, I've actually been working internationally with HTA bodies, uh, with uh, pharmaceutical companies, medical device companies, and with patient organizations around everything related to developing HTA and improving the way in which we determine the value of new medicines. So that takes me into all sorts of activities, including particularly the use of data in our health systems. So I am now working with a group called Real World Evidence for Decisions, and I'll tell you a bit more about that later, but that's quite exciting. That sounds very good. Thank you for the introduction. So maybe directly jump a bit into the, into the topic. I mean, we have, let's say, decided to just, let's say, focus on one of your, let's say, um, experiences, right? I mean, you just said HDA statistics, I think it's really a broad kind of <laughs> spectrum you could really cover. But today, I think the focus will be on real world evidence, obviously in context of HDA and so on. But before we maybe get into some of the discussions, I think it would be good if you could quickly define how you see real world evidence, because people might have as well different ideas and opinions what it really is. That's a great question, because just recently there's been a paper published by Ron Akehurst et al. in Value in Health, which identifies that there are about 20 different definitions <laughs> of real-world data. Uh, there are many coming from the regulators, from EMA, from FDA, also some HTA bodies, the academics. But actually, I return to the definition in the International HTA Glossary, and there was wide consultation on this definition. And it is simply that real world data is data collected during the routine delivery of healthcare. And real world evidence is the analysis of that data. 
Now, that's probably the simplest of any definition you would find. <laughs> and that's, I guess, because it was created under international collaboration. But I think the, the point here is that real-world data is any data collected during the routine delivery of healthcare. So it doesn't come from a controlled clinical trial. So it might come from a pragmatic clinical trial, but it doesn't come from a control clinical trial where there are all those rules set upon how you deliver care, how you treat side effects. It's much more that routine care. That's what we're trying to capture. And I think the really interesting thing is that in the past five or 10 years, we've realized that real world data just doesn't come from administrative data sets like we've seen used in pharmacoepidemiology for, for decades. It also can come from many other sources. So from genomics data sets, um, from uh, many of the different administrative uh, healthcare databases, but also from patients themselves through apps. And there's a lot of interest in, in mobile app data. Now, I don't think all of those data are as useful to HTA and decision makers as, uh, uh, for example, some of the administrative databases and, for example, mortality data that we collect within our healthcare system. And then, of course, there's the question about how that's analysed to create robust real-world evidence. But we can talk about all of that, I'm sure. Yes, absolutely. Fully agree. But I, th I think you, especially at the end, I think you have made a quite nice correlative link probably between HTA and real-world evidence. Um, I mean, you know, when I'm sitting together with payers, I mean, as you know, probably even better, I mean, RCT is still the gold standard, right? So, I mean, if I may be a bit nasty, why do we really need real-world evidence data? Uh, that's a great question. And we all know, I think, that in the last month, there have been two papers published from some of our key HCA and payer bodies within Europe stating quite clearly RCTs are the gold standard. And I think we need to recognize here that firstly, HTA comes from an evidence-based medicine paradigm. Mm -hmm. So we have a hierarchy of evidence, which actually starts at the top with meta-analyses of randomized controlled trials, because actually we always used to expect more than one RCT of good quality. And so that's our basis. That's our history. But um, what we are saying is that real-world evidence is complementary to robust clinical trials. And if possible, randomized controlled trials should be undertaken because they are the best way of demonstrating short-term treatment effectiveness. Mm -hmm. However... What we recognize is that they don't answer some questions. For example, they don't answer questions about long-term treatment effectiveness or use in broader populations, which we've just been talking about. So, so they answer what happens in that controlled trial, the, the efficacy question, but they maybe don't answer what's happening in, in real life. And so people are realizing that real-world evidence has a role to play. Mm. And, and what we've seen increasingly in the last five years, I would say, is highly innovative technologies, so advanced cancer therapies, treatments, 
where there's been high unmet need in rare diseases, particularly in pediatric populations, that have uh, been expedited by uh, regulators. And we've got a very small data set, often a single arm. And this is where the big debate is, is happening. What do we do with these single arm trials that are often an interim analysis of the planned trial? How, how do we make a decision as a payer about that? Because the regulators can say that the, the treatment works, but actually the payer has to think, will I pay the amount asked for this, given that value is still highly uncertain for me at the moment, given value is often way in the future. Exactly. exactly. So I think um, if I try to summarize that, I think the first thing is probably more around generalizability, right? It's more yeah. RCT, you know, if you maybe want to call it, it's more laboratory kind of environment, right? And yeah. then it's the question, how does the drug or the, the therapy in general maybe work in real life? That's uh, right. I think maybe a good example what I just had in mind when you were speaking is well the safety signals in one of the um, COVID nineteen vaccinations, right? Um, yeah. Quite rarely happen, but if you have obviously a quite big sample size suddenly because you have the full population as a kind yeah. of analysis base in real life, right? You suddenly see those signals as well, right? That's maybe one component. The other one is obviously you just brought in what do we do with therapies, especially in the rare disease area where we maybe only have a single arm study as an evidence base. That's right. And I think your first situation there is a very traditional use of real world data in pharmacovigilance settings. And I think the other area where we're seeing the value of what I call that real world effectiveness uh, question is the therapies that come to us with a very small data set often we don't know how best to use them. Mm -hmm. For example, dose and the way in which we give the treatment is not yet optimized. So we're seeing particularly, for example, with cell therapies, which when first came to the market, we all knew they had severe toxicities, grade three and four cytokine release syndrome in, in several patients. And I think what we've seen in the real world by looking at data, by, by uh, learning from clinicians and patients' experience is that we're changing the way we give those treatments now. Um, to, so we're reducing the need for intensive care. So we're really optimizing the treatment. And that's a really important new element, I think, of the value of real world data. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I, I, I fully agree. I think that's, uh, I, I think that was as well a, another quite nice intro. I think eighteen piece. I think as you have as well just introduced. I think I generally probably anyway, I would say a bit different, right, in comparison to their traditional therapies. Um, I mean, I think we discussed also. I think probably a while ago. I think if you let's say have maybe more the maybe more the kind of conservative payer in mind, right, which is fine, right, because they need to let's say manage. A billion euros budget, right? So you yeah. also want to invest and can only invest where you maybe get as well the best out of it. So it's also the question, I mean, if we would look at 18Ps from a very traditional evidence-based medicine perspective, we could not really reimburse those, right? But we see 18Ps are available, I would say at least in most of the countries in Europe and in many more countries also when you have a look globally. Absolutely. I think it's the ATMPs that have really pushed the conversation with the payers about the need to consider real world data. 
Um, but we have seen gene therapies. I always quote Veretta gene for inherited retinal disorder, which actually had a randomized controlled trial, very small number of patients, about 30. Um, but by doing a randomized controlled trial, they could show quite clearly improvements in the treated arm with abs with decline in those that did not receive treatment. Um, so I think that traditional trials are still popular. I don't want to sort of say for ATMPs, we can't do RCTs. But what we see is I think we need to differentiate between cell therapies and gene therapies. I see them as very different and the potential use of real world data very different. So I think cell therapies are generally given at the last stage of a cancer. We, there may be uh, other alternatives like stem cell transplant, but we're, we're really looking at few alternatives at that stage. And so often the key there is how long is the patient going to survive? And, and actually that's quite easy to measure in a real world setting. Most countries have good records of mortality or can collect that in a straightforward way. So I think that that's more easily doable to evaluate a treatment. And we've seen situations whereby payers for the first time have put in novel pricing agreements. So, so the first payment by results, as they call it in Italy, within the IFA uh, database was for the CAR-T therapies. So that was really quite a new element whereby payment was given at, at baseline at six months, at 12 or 18 months, depending on the product, depending on the outcome we see. And that was the first time we saw that. So that was, that was really groundbreaking. And for the gene therapy, I think it's somewhat different because the gene therapies we've seen to date we tend to give them at an earlier stage of the disease. We tend to think, give them as early as possible. And, and in many childhood diseases, we're now saying, give them before we even see symptoms. So this is a very early situation. So the whole risk benefit profile is different because here we're giving something which is going to modify a gene for the rest of the, the child or the patient's life. So there's a, there's a long-term safety question that we don't know. And there is a question about how do we measure benefits over 20 years? Because we know that we can't do real-world studies over 20 years. So, so it's not like we want to measure mortality in three to five years like we do with the cell therapies. But if it's children maybe it's easier. So if we look at uh, on a semnogene for spinal muscular atrophy, we know that some of the agreements there have been in the very young babies, can they sit up? Because that's a clear developmental milestone. Yeah. So one of the key questions for real world data is, is there an outcome that can be measured and agreed by all stakeholders as being the important thing? And that's often the challenge. Yeah, no, no, I fully agree. I, I, I would directly maybe jump on on your last example because I think it's a very important one. I think it's it's quite nice, let's say, to link, let's say, real-world evidence with um, managed entry agreements, right, in a broader sense. Yeah. I mean, you have brought in with the cell therapies, obviously, survival, easy to measure. Also, payers can easily check that, right? I mean, either a patient's alive or is dead, very simple, zero or one. 
Um, but then we have, let's say, within the gene therapies, probably some indication disease areas with, where it might get a bit more tricky. I think you have brought up a quite nice, let's say, um, example where the baby could, which could suddenly, let's say, sit, right? It's the developmental kind of, um, let's say, stage, um, which could be measured. But the measurement is just and can only be done by either the, the parents and or the physician, right? So yeah. a payer would not see that. How would you solve such a kind of issue? I mean, you know, if I would also be in the payer's shoes, right? I would just say, you know, it, it's great. And I would really love to have that. But how could I really make sure that I pay for that success, what you're telling me now? That's a great question. And I think that what we are seeing is increased collaboration between companies and payers with disease registry holders. So for spinal muscular atrophy, actually for the previous therapies, so not the, the gene therapies, but the new therapies like nusinersen and Ristaplan, there has been engagement to either use existing national registries and make sure they're collecting information that payers want or develop new registries. And I think that this is a key way forward and it's the first time we've seen this. And, and another example here, this also relates to the cell therapies, is that the European Blood and Marrow Transplant Registry was the first to be used for the CAR-Ts. And then they really engaged with the regulators and with the companies to, to make sure that the data were being collected and being fed through to decision makers. In real-world evidence for decisions, we work with all stakeholders to talk about how we can collect data. And in the past year, we've particularly had interest from registry holders who are saying to us, we don't really understand what HTA and pricing is. You know, we work very closely with clinicians. And, mm -hmm. and I think their point of uh, interest has been in, in obviously delivering clinicians and patient needs, but they're now realizing that actually it's somebody else who's making the ultimate decision about routine access to these products and that they have uh, an important resource which could provide robust evidence, but but actually that needs funding. And that, that's another issue as well, funding of registries. But I think there's a, going to be a whole development about, around use of disease registries. Yeah, it, 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 another really good kind of uh, um, reply here. I mean, when let's say another complexity maybe here as well, right? I mean, funding is one thing for registries, right? But I mean, if I would be, let's say in a company, I would obviously not want to have registries per country, right? And I would even think of, let's say, even if I would potentially have a European-wide registry, sometimes it's also because of the legal situation, whatever, a bit difficult already to include, for example, the UK, right? Because of Brexit. But uh, what about if I want to have it more read on a global level? Because my key market is maybe the US. So I might, because I might as well be in the US, I might also want to maybe have as well Canada in there. But then we have already real big kind of registry across very different healthcare systems. Is that something which is really, let's say, um, happening or is it really more thinking about very small kind of, let's call it maybe clusters? Actually, there are great developments for transnational registries. And the key here is to agree the common core data set. Mm. Uh, so these are, these are federated. So they're, they're, 
the custodians are within the national jurisdiction or wherever the region is, might be a province, say in Canada, and then those data are brought together in a safe environment, and but the data stays where it is. So we're using federated networks for these kind of registries. Uh, and we had inputs this year for Acromegly, a new international uh, database uh, registry uh, uh, being developed for this. Also, uh, SMA and the neuromuscular diseases. There's been a lot of international work on this. And these are being held often within university hospitals, so trusted environments, secure operating environments. And that's where we are now. We're in a situation where we're looking at a secure operating environment that brings together not just the uh, forms filled in by a clinician, uh, at the bedside, as it were, but also bringing in patient-reported outcomes. If we look at haemophilia, for example, they've brought in the probe outcome, which was developed by patients for patients, but that's being brought in alongside uh, clinical data that is that is haemophilia-specific and other data uh, about the progression of a, a patient through life, as it were, so bringing in that mortality data as well. So we are seeing much more complexity because of the computing power and the data analytics power that we now have. And we really need to draw on that, particularly for the rare diseases where we've got the high unmet need. Yeah, I I think that that that's a good point. Um, just while you were speaking, I was also thinking about let's say another possibility to use um, real world evidence. I mean, we said beforehand generalizability and obviously the kind of effectiveness um, in real life, especially maybe in uh, products where the evidence base, especially from a sample size perspective, is not so high. But we've also seen attempts by companies submitting a comparison of their single arm study results versus historical data based on registries. Even though that we've also seen that with different payers, they were not really accepting that, at least not in all of the cases. What are your thoughts on that, especially on the complexity of such analysis? It's really important to raise this issue because it's what we're seeing most commonly now is what we call this use of an external control arm from some source of real-world data. And actually, I've just been doing a review of some of these, and I've found all sorts of different examples. So we might be looking at um, a disease registry, for example, from within the country, and uh, doing a retrospective analysis of that to, to identify uh, interventions and outcomes. Um, we might be uh, looking at uh, a placebo arm from a different trial. We might be uh, taking data from a range of sources and trying to work out which one is best. And sometimes this is really hard to do because quite often we're still looking at small data sets. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at 20 or 30 patients and we're trying to say, well, this one's got 12 months follow-up but it, it's in quite a different care setting. So if it's in Europe and we're looking at US data, we might be worried about the generalizability of that. Is it the same kind of care that they are receiving, which would be received in Europe? 
but then we might have uh, a local data set, but it's not got such good follow-up. And so what we see here is what I think is important to explain is trade-offs. Mm -hmm. So often there's no perfect data set. What we have to do is look at the strengths and weaknesses. And I've seen NICE do this quite well, sort of lay out different potential sources which have been put to them by a company and then lay out the strengths and weaknesses. And unfortunately, it's up to the committee to decide which one they will go with. And I, and I think here it's where we're seeing improvements in the development of this real-world evidence, these external control arms, whereby companies are realizing this needs to be done with great rigor. So they need to show how the data has been curated, uh, the different decisions that had to be made. You know, there are time windows. There are all sorts of questions. It's, it's not a straightforward exercise, as anybody who's created an external <laughs> control arm will know. And I think the, the work we see from experts like Sebastian Schneeweiss at Duke University Margolis, who is giving us templates by which we can undertake a real-world evidence study, and that's how we need to think about an external control arm, to present it and show that it's fit for the purpose for decision makers. So we're seeing a lot of developments in this field, and I think we need to, to look at that and see how that's taken up by payers. Yes, <laughs> I think another good bridge. I think we're coming more to the end, but you have just said developments, let's say, in the area of real-world evidence, especially linked to payers. Um, which developments do you see potentially coming up um, which would support the use of real-world evidence by payers, let's say in the next five or maybe 10 years? So the key developments I see happening are an increased awareness from HGA and payers about the need for real-world data and for themselves to upskill, to employ staff who are experts in this field like data scientists and then to provide guidance to industry about what good quality real world evidence is so for example we've seen Haas in France produce new guidance there's guidance from ICWIG there's guidance from NICE but other agencies are likewise developing this guidance this year we will see CADEth present its real-world evidence framework. So we will see an upskilling from these HTA bodies. I think we will see more interactions between payers and their health systems, who are the data custodians, to be able to access the data and make sure that data is being collected and can be used by HTA and payers. Because at the moment, that's not straightforward. There are barriers there that, that don't allow that. So I think payers are going to make clearer what their real world evidence needs are. I think that another important thing is that we're going to see more sharing of what's happening. So we are seeing payers now wanting to discuss what their real-world data collection requirements are. This started within the European network for HTA, but I think this will increase. 
the ultimate thing I would like to see is alignment of data collection requirements across jurisdictions so that we can then have assessment of a much larger data set on a federated network. And here, the European health data space has a lot to offer and payers will want to get involved and use that resource. And I think finally, payers and HTA bodies want to work in collaboration with other stakeholders. They, they want to be able to approve products that are of value, but they need the evidence to demonstrate that value if they, if they have to pay high prices. And so we need collaboration with industry, with registry holders, and the group I haven't talked about yet, that is patients. Patients are really upskilling and they need to be involved in all of these conversations. And I think the HTA and payers know that, uh, and particularly as we see the development of patient reported outcomes and the use of that data within a range of settings. That was perfect. Very good. Karen, thanks a lot for your insights. Thanks a lot as well for your potential outlook. I'm also pretty much sure that real-world evidence will probably be used even more in the future and especially by payers and their decision making, especially, I mean, with all of the different kind of new developments with the new different kind of areas, especially around the 18Ps and other uh, drugs as well. Thank you, Karen. Thanks, Stefan. It's been a pleasure talking to you. So what a great discussion with Karen Fessy on real-world evidence and especially the link to managed entry agreements in the payers sphere. So the question is obviously how and in which ways real-world evidence data would further be acceptable, especially in the future. I think we have just heard maybe it has also to do not only for, let's say from a political perspective, the let's say more challenging discussions currently still on real-world evidence data, but sometimes maybe also the staff, so the experience, the expertise, which might be missing in some of the payers' bodies. At the end of the day, I think what we anyway see is quite good development in that area, also within the payer and HTA institutions. For sure, this might have also to do with the developments around ATMPs. More to come, I think, if one would see the different pipelines of the various companies, that is for sure something where also payers would need to prepare. And that preparation is not only important from an evidence perspective, but it's even more important, let's say, from a pricing and hence budget perspective. Which products should be paid for, for which price? And then it's obviously the question, can really RCT data be generated or are there maybe other ways, for example, through historical data comparisons or generally by following the effectiveness, the safety of this as well in a real-world evidence base. Furthermore, it will still be important besides the expertise and the experience on real-world evidence that also payers might potentially even adopt their decision-making rules. I mean, just having a look, for example, in the German context, that is a quite clear focus on evidence-based medicine so far, even though that for 18Ps, often drugs in general, there's a bit of a net in a way for the added benefit rating, which is not happening, for example, in other countries, France, the UK, a lot of other countries, basically all of the other countries I know don't have such a kind of safety net for often drugs, meaning they are still, let's say, evaluated as any other drug. But still, some of those have been maybe a bit more pragmatic. Take the UK nice, they have especially also accepted, let's say, for example, more extrapolation 
of clinical data into the future, which has not been, be fair, not really been accepted by the German ICWIC slash GBA. Um, and that's maybe as well something for and to consider. The other point is for sure how the EU joint HDA might maybe then take a key role in there. What about the situation that on a European basis, real-world evidence, for example, through a historical comparison would be acceptable overall? How would then payer organizations deal with that? Would they then suddenly say, yes, it was potentially analyzed by the European responsible HCA organization and was seen as acceptable, especially from a methodological perspective, or would they still want to go in there because there might be some very specific country analysis maybe required also on such a data analysis set. In any way, I think we'll see a first kind of attempt towards a clear more frame for real-world evidence in the payer context um, where and with the CADET, which is the Canadian a reimbursement, let's say, agency, they will be publishing their framing, their guidance mid of May this year, so quite soon after ISPOR 2023 as well. Stay tuned. That was an episode of MAP, the market access podcast provided by Mars Market Access and Pricing Strategy, which is your healthcare consultancy in the German-speaking markets. MAP is available every second week with a new episode, so watch out. And in case you might have questions, contact me directly and or visit our website on www.marketaccess-pricingstrategy.de.